0: I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer that America is no better than any other country, no different, and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on June 21st, 2023. It has been a while since the new episode, and I'm glad to be back. A lot has happened. Significant Supreme Court decision, decisions on everything from congressional redistricting to limiting the scope of the Clean Water Act and more. Further indictments of former President Donald Trump, congressional investigations into UFOs, and more people entering the 2024 race for president. A lot has happened. But today I want to return to some basic questions about what kind of government we want and what our choices today could mean for the viability of America's future. Episode 101 Does size really matter? Big government, small government, limited government, broad governmental power? The terms are bantered about in politics, but what do they really mean? Do they really matter? And why were our founders so determined? to limit the federal government's powers in hopes of also limiting its size. It is certainly true that government tends to grow as a population grows. But growth does not necessarily mean that more departments and agencies are created to involve the government in more things. It may or at least could theoretically only mean that the number of elected officials grows to ensure proper representation of this larger group of people. Or at least that, that is the kind of growth that one might theorize about, about, but has never happened in human history. Governments grow. The only downsizing of government on any large scale occurs when a nation collapses and or power is seized by a new number of elites to create a dictatorship or authoritarian government or to try in an attempt to start over. But even then, our nature appears to result in continual growth of not only the size but by growing the size, the power of government. So who cares? Why does size matter? Though size itself, in terms of absolute numbers, was not a key concern of our founders. Limitations were. And given the size to which the United States government has now grown, a number of issues are raised for which there are no easy solutions if we want to scale back that growth. And it's not growth just in size, but in scope. If government has overstepped its granted authority and or grown beyond appropriate levels, what can be done now? No matter one's views on the way our government was limited by the Constitution and where limitations should begin and end, surely no one supports a completely unlimited government. And what does appear to be true is that where the growth of government starts to have negative impacts on society overall, it can be possible at least to adjust course, even the smallest amount just a bit to prevent true collapse by reducing authority and size ever so slightly. It was not so much size in the abstract, but a Republican form of government that, that was to grow, at least as to the number of representatives of the people. But the scope of authority of the newly formed government that drew the attention of our founders. In other words, they did not dictate size, but they did in fact have concerns about what this new government could do. And for those not certain this new constitution adequately protected against federal government overreach, the Federalist Papers were an attempt by those framers, the drafters of this fine document, to make the argument that they had properly limited this new federal government. In explaining that much of the objection to the Constitution arose due to a lack of understanding of the difference between a democracy and a republic, James Madison in Federalist No. 14 provided this key component of the federal government This key part, the structure of it, particularly as it would relate to the governments of the many states, when he wrote the following, It is to be remembered that the general government is not to be charged with the whole power of making and administering laws. Its jurisdiction is limited to certain enumerated objects, which concern all the members of the Republic, but which are not to be attained by the separate provisions of any. The subordinate governments, which can extend their care to all those other objects, which can be separately provided for, will retain their due authority and activity. Were it proposed by the plan of the Convention to abolish the governments of the particular states, its adversaries would have some ground for their objection, though it would not be difficult to show that if they were abolished, the general governments would be compelled by the principle of self-preservation to reinstate them in their proper jurisdiction. Of course, this discussion focuses on the size or scope of authority, not the size of the new national government in terms of economics or the number of officials. Though if limited to only those enumerated powers, such growth in size necessarily should also have been limited. Then again, in Federalist Number 41, Madison further counters arguments against the new federal government by explaining how protections against that government's overreach of its authorities are provided in two different ways. The first, by what limited powers are actually vested in this new federal government, and then second, by separating and dividing those powers among the three different branches. In then explaining the powers that are vested in the federal government, it becomes clear that the focus of this national government was to focus more outward than inward. Powers of war, raising armies, calling forth militia, taxing imports and otherwise overseeing foreign trade, making treaties between the new United States and other nations— regulating immigration and naturalization of new citizens, regulating those things that are truly interstate, primarily related to trade among the various states and with Indian tribes. Of course, there are some enumerated powers that are domestic, internal, discussed in these papers and in the Constitution. But even if time was taken to discuss them all, the discussion would be relatively short as compared to the never-ending list of power now being exercised by this very same supposed limited government envisioned and created by our Founders. The argument may be that some of these issues simply did not exist at the time of the founding, and of course that is true. But there are ways to address that via amending the Constitution. And for most of today's talked-about political issues and debated issues among the agencies, boards, and branches of our federal government, a vast many find no authority within our Constitution for federal action at all. So it, it is this kind of government largesse, in both power and absolute size, I posit poses a risk to our future. We can go back and look at the downfall of societies and identify a number of possible reasons for their collapses. Size was not and will not always be the deciding factor. But what size does, a government and system that is larger rather than smaller, is separate the people from those governing them, disperse and concentrate power at the same time, increase the cost to citizens for their government, and leave a lack of clarity as to who is responsible when government acts, whether properly or improperly. The result is growing distrust and dissatisfaction among the governed. As government grows, so too do the areas of private action it controls and with which it in- interferes through regulation and other actions. As regulation grows, freedom lessens. So any regulation, particularly for a nation founded on the principles that created ours, must be analyzed to determine if it is the type of federal government a type of action the federal government was granted authority to enact. If it is, then further evaluation should be done as the regulation is implemented and enforced to ensure that how it is actually applied to the people also falls within that authority actually granted to the government. Where the conclusion on either of those questions is that it goes beyond the authority granted, it cannot simply be enough to accept it or argue for its acceptance based on a claim it is for the greater good, as nothing that deprives the people of making a conscious and intentional choice to expand and confer more power on its government is for the greater good. Much of the modern expansion of government in the Western world has focused on economic and social regulation. Economic freedom comes from the ability to achieve individual economic growth through years and through generations. When government grows, it requires more to fund its own operations. And since it produces nothing, it can only acquire those funds by taking them from their citizens. In the past decade or so, as more citizens demand more and more from their government, The cost of larger government and larger government programs somehow gets buried in the national conscience in such a way that few bother to ask how we can pay for a government that offers more and more while still producing nothing. So what is the argument for a smaller government and as a result a lower tax burden versus a government that offers more but at a higher and sometimes intolerable cost? In 2019, an article in The Hill attempted to answer that question. In his opinion piece entitled Size Matters, The Case for Small Government, Douglas Carr, president of his own financial and economic advisory firm, provides the following information for consideration, and this is summarized. Tracking growth of a nation or region's economic growth with its growth in government services, Carr demonstrates that as the government offers more, the economy of the nation governed by that entity either declines or grows at a much slower rate than nations offering fewer services. But how will our people obtain medical care, education, food, and more, if not guaranteed and or offered by the government? By using their own earned and retained dollars. Compare the impressive growth of the economics of countries like Greece and Poland in the 1960s and 70s with the sluggish growth experienced by these nations in the 2000s. The same trends are apparent in nations like France, Spain, Austria, Belgium, Finland, and Sweden. In today's climate, where these nations have promised to now offer so many public services, they are all facing growth rates of sometimes less than 1% in cases like Spain, Greece, and Portugal. What has happened to these nations since the mid-20th century? The share of their economies have has, as Carr points out, quote, shifted from the private to the public sector. In some cases, this results in the public sector comprising as much as a fifth or more of a nation-state's economy. This same trend is seen elsewhere in the world, such as in Japan, Once a rising economic giant and now facing a situation where the public sector makes up 40% of the GDP, gross domestic product, and growth is stagnant at under a single percent. But Carr's research also points to hope. When Sweden found itself falling victim to a stalling economy in the face of more government expenditures, it did cut back its programs. And, after cutting government's share of its GDP by 20%, it returned to a higher rate of economic growth. And Ireland's focus on cutting back government has allowed that nation to bounce back from an EU-imposed bank bailout that to, to show stunning growth pre-pandemic, and it appears to be returning strong in the past year. It is true that government investment or stimulus can produce a bubble of seeming growth, but if government expenditures continue to grow, private investment in the economy shrinks, and thus the economy shrinks. And the simple size and amount of government programs and their costs does not even address head-on the threats to future growth and stability when the nation takes on debt to pay for these ever-growing programs. The nation is in debt. Not just a little debt, but a lot of debt. And that could be its own discussion, but there's not much to say other than the debt load is unbearable in perpetuity. Even if the federal government had restrained itself and not strayed from the limited grants of authority found in the United States Constitution, it is hard to imagine the government we see today looks anything like what our founders envisioned, especially when it comes to fiscal responsibility. It may not matter much how much of our GDP is from public or private activity, as our debt reaches more than 100% of that GDP. Here is where economics gets more complicated than just stimulus money stimulates the economy. Such temporary measures only temporarily prop up demand while also causing possible inflation that does not decrease as government funds stop flowing. But today's episode is not about the government's temporary flood of money into the economy. It's about the programs that once instituted never go away and seem to grow ever larger with each budget. One area where the government has meddled in the economy, for example, is in the form of subsidies. Subsidies increase demand and therefore artificially increase prices hurting those in lower economic brackets who then need more subsidies. It is government meddling that resulted in higher costs of education, insurance, and housing. Subsidies actually create a vicious cycle. If the government both heavily regulates an area, causing costs to rise due to the level of regulation, and then provides subsidies to counter those higher costs, prices rise again and cries for more subsidies flow, and so on, and so on. Subsidies for student loans? Well, subsidies... Cause student loans to be allow students to pay for higher education and higher costs for it. So, education costs rise. So, students want more subsidies. And the cycle continues. Force health insurance companies to provide more prepaid medical care no matter a person's health risks rather than protection for appreciated health risks based on individual health factors. Prices rise. They don't fall. It's not subsidies and regulation that lead to new and better technologies, and it's not subsidizing or imposing price controls that brings prices down, but competition. Why do so many look to businesses like Amazon for so many different goods? Because that company found a way to compete to enable it to offer not only competitive prices, but free or inexpensive shipping, offering both reasonable prices and convenience to the consumer. Now, I can't get into why Amazon fails and someone else doesn't, because there's so much meddling by the government in various businesses that you never know exactly what factors are at play. But the ability to develop an innovative business model is the result of competition and trying to find a way to compete with other retailers or other people in your industry. Don't get me wrong. I do not believe a world of such massively large economic players is ideal. I like mom and pop shops. I like shopping local. But if it is what the consumer wants, it is what the economy should offer and the government should not be telling us otherwise. But where one of the largest players, if not the largest player, is your government, you lose both economically and in terms of individual liberty, as much of true liberty is tied to being able for us to keep the fruits of our own labor to the benefit of ourselves and our family. Where government debt, programs, and taxes all increase, we have less freedom and control over our own lives. And it's not just as individuals in a generic sense but the less freedom and funding for real innovation that could benefit us all in competitive private markets. Everything about federal government spending is simply inefficient and ineffective. None of the efforts by large government to cure social ills has worked. War on poverty. Still going on. No success. War on drugs. Same. Control health care costs. Government programs have only served to increase costs both of insurance and actual medical care. Subsidies for education, skyrocketing higher education costs, and the list continues. And for as much as criticism looms large in connection with capitalism and the efforts of private industry, few can deny that real innovation comes from private willingness to expend funds and effort. Just watch the current space race. It's not really between nations as it once was, but among private companies willing and able to take on the costs and risks of trying something new. Again, that is not to say that kind of technology has no place in government or that government shouldn't support it in some way, but that real innovation in it, in it is likely to come from elsewhere and should, unless the reason for spending it is to invest for legitimate government purposes in national security and defense, come from private dollars. Even if the economy could be improved with more government— which does not appear to be the case, quality of life involves, both on a micro and macro level, a balancing of economic strength and time, freedom with your time, time to enjoy your life. When the government enters more and more realms of the personal, no matter our spending power, if we cannot spend as we choose, freedom is lost. And this brings us back again to the basic purpose of a small and limited government, freedom. Those things government must do for us, the things we cannot effectively or efficiently do for ourselves, national defense, border control, international relations, regulation of foreign trade, those areas is where government has a role to play. But it is a relatively small one, even in the modern world. So what should our federal government focus on? Where should it consider bowing out or reducing its influence? Who knows? And the answers are different no matter who you ask. But one thing is certain, we must control size and expenditures if we plan to have a fruitful future. As government action has expanded, the number of government employees has exploded. So it is not just the cost of the programs in the sense of what actually goes to the activity being subsidized or supported, but to all the many employees hired to oversee it. In an October 2020 Brookings Institute piece that was part of that organization's series on the case for major government reform, an article entitled, The True Size of Government is Nearing a Record High, provided this staggering information. The article revealed some ebb and flow in the number of civil servants year to year, but we cannot escape the fact that more than 10 million members of the workforce work for the federal government. And federal spending now saddles the average American household with their share of debt equal to at least $30,000 per American family or more. But research how to cut the federal budget or how to reduce our annual deficit or the national debt overall and any number of programs will be the focus of, and what programs will be the focus of cuts, corporate subsidies, welfare programs, government employee pay increases, etc. Here is the problem. Beyond just targeting government waste, the government has gotten so large that more must be done if it is ever going to stop growing, let alone shrink. It cannot be minor cuts to major programs. It cannot be small cuts to large agencies. Every president seems to target one or more agencies for severe cuts or elimination, though which agencies depends on political party and basic understandings about the role of federal government. But even if a president, political party, or congressional leadership agree that an agency should not exist, It is not so easy simply to abolish it at this point. Government is necessary, and when people have been relying on certain government programs for years, it can be difficult to roll those back and near impossible to eliminate them. And it is apparent from history that governments not controlled by the people they govern are destined for tyranny and ultimately revolt. But what's the right level of government authority for the self-governed? At what point is government either granted too much by the citizenry or is taken more than it was granted? In some societies, answering those questions may be hard, but in ours it shouldn't be. The framers of our founding documents set out clear lines of authority. That is not to say determining when the government can act is always easy or simple, but it can be done. We have written parameters. Unfortunately, as our society has grown, our government has grown so large in size and scope that one of the key checks on its authority, public scrutiny, is hardly able to rein in in any overreaching. There's so much going on in the federal government, we can't begin to monitor monitor it all. We can't begin as the people to say, in our own opinions, where money is being spent improperly or unwisely. We all likely have federal agencies we would target for reduction or elimination. But the truth of the matter is no one can really even keep track of what these agencies do. All the things that are done by them each day. The head of a department or agency may be briefed on key activities, but likely can in no way, due to the current size, really know what the workers below him do on a daily basis. When that is the case, government has become too large. The title of a November 2021 article in The Economist stated this conclusion, Governments are not going to stop getting bigger. If that is true, have we reached an era where big government is now in control, even trumping our social contract set out in the Constitution? Does it no longer matter whether this largesse embodies only constitutionally proper proper government action? It certainly should. But the Economist article is enlightening as to the reality, much like the opinion piece mentioned earlier in The Hill that made the argument for small, or at least smaller, government. This article, too, recognized that some nations have been successful at retracting government size and spending, but such periods of retraction appear short-lived and are typically followed by another explosion in government growth. For example, in 2019, under the leadership of Angela Merkel, Germany was able to return its level of government spending, as compared to GDP, to the same level that nation had seen in 2006. But today, it's again, government spending is growing. And in the 1980s, after enormous growth in government programs and related spending threatened Sweden's economy, its leadership made significant cuts. But it has returned, in recent years, to more government spending. Though it does still remember that it needs to watch how much it expands its programs. New Zealand saw a similar drastic cut in spending in the early 1990s when spending was overseen by then-Finance Minister Ruth Richardson. But what followed with today's official in that position is a promise to, quote, address the most inequitable of the changes made 30 years ago. By doing what? By instituting huge increases in welfare payouts. These governments, much like our own, no longer follow the teachings of noted economists like Milton Friedman or Frederick Hayek, and tend instead to play to the cries of the electorate for more and more, without regard regard for the cost or who is paying. As noted in the article in The Economist as to the shift away from the teachings of Friedman and Hayek, that a government cannot possibly address the needs of millions of sovereign citizens as well as they can address their own needs. This shift, this shift away from that belief, the article states, quote, hardly constitutes a triumph for the left, which continues to see insufficient government spending as fundamental to a whole raft of problems. But the real problem again, as stated succinctly further in the article, is, quote, the growth in what governments spend typically comes with a growth in what they do and how much they control of the doing of others, end quote. You see, even if it's not government regulation, it is certainly financial redistribution, and any of those actions control what we are allowed to do by redistributing our own earnings for programs, policies, and priorities that may be out of line with our own or, more importantly, outside the scope of proper authority of our government. And the problem is not solely one of electorate demands. Bureaucrats naturally defend their power and seek to expand it. Politicians are often rewarded for promising more, not less. And government is also not immune from the same population shifts and conduct that led to the emergence of big business. Bigger is better, or at least that's the thinking in some spheres of life. Add to all these factors that a public sector job is controlled by regulations that rarely allow pay to be determined by merit or productivity, and that laws exist that make it more difficult to terminate public servants than private sector employees. The United States has grown too big, but big government is not a problem only of this nation. The issue here that is unique is that we had an agreed-upon set of rules, the Constitution, that our federal government feels and acts as if, as if it does not or no longer needs to apply. That is a big problem. That is one that can be more taken on uh, directly. The real problem is more widespread than that one, however. Returning to the points made in the Economist article, The reality may be what needs to be addressed if we are ever to return to our founding principle of a small and limited government, and that focuses on reframing and reigniting the debate against statist thought. The state is not a provider. The state is not a producer. The state is not your father, and the state is not who provides a life for you. Here's what the article had to say that's worth sharing on this point here. Joanne Norberg, a Swedish free market thinker, says he is politically homeless. No major political force is listening. In France, Gaspard Koenig, a philosopher who runs a think tank which focuses on economic freedom, is seeking to shift the terms of the debate, but the consensus in France remains clearly in favor of big government and high public spending. The Belgian region of Flanders, where some of those seeking independence see lower taxes and a smaller state as a possible result, is a curiosity, not the start of a movement. People such as Mr. Norberg might seem to have little alternative but to hope for a turn in the intellectual tide, like that which saw the ideas of Friedman and Hayek flood the corridors of power in the late 1970s, a turn driven by the increasingly apparent failures of overregulated, state-dominated capitalism. But in the meantime, they still have policies to advocate. It's a lot to hope on just a turn in intellectual discussions and beliefs. So what policies could we actually look to to try to rein in big government? The problem is there is no consensus on what policies will work, even among advocates for small government. One option proposed by some at the Institute of Economic Affairs, a conservative think tank, is to allow individuals to opt out of government programs and assistance. In return, they would have a tax break or lower tax burden. The problem here is that those who will take that offer are both those who use the services least already and whose taxes likely pay more than their share to provide those services. In other words, here's one possible policy that sounds good. It seems attractive to those of us who neither want nor need to rely on government for more than its central and constitutional purposes. But what would probably reduce tax revenue far more than it reduced reduce services is allowing that kind of opt-out. We must all choose to opt-out. We must, in fact, try to turn the tide of intellectual thought to return to the idea that the government cannot provide best for millions and millions of different people's needs. As always, thank you for listening. Small government was the goal, but that may no longer be in our reach, at least not anytime soon. We may be faced with a situation where the best we can do is to refocus government on its proper activities and try, ever so incrementally, to reduce its cost. Though the tide of big government may not be able to be entirely sent back out to sea, if spending is not controlled more effectively, we may face so much debt, increased by every annual deficit, that the federal government is forced to confront its own proclamation. Should we ever have considered anything too big to fail, or is it actually this very largesse, whether automakers, banks, or our government, that dooms us to failure? Alexis de Tocqueville observed, History is a gallery of pictures in which there are few originals and many copies. The United States of America stands as an original, but it is not free from the temptations and missteps of those nations and societies of which our founders knew and from which they attempted to create a structure that would do all it could to prevent the kinds of issues human nature creates and with which our great nation is now dealing. Small, limited government is least dangerous, more efficient, and most responsive. When it grows to a level where it can be none of those things, it is our obligation to our country, to try to figure out what can be done to turn the tide. There are still champions for smaller government, and there are still many who claim to fight for that principle, but few in power actually do or can take the steps necessary not only to stop the growth of government, but to shrink it from its current size. Size does matter, but bigger is not always better. Next episode, in keeping some with the topic of today and our government's proper role... I will explore what appear to be the issues at the top of the federal government's priority list and why those issues not only do not belong as matters for the federal government at all, but how they may be distracting us all, intentionally or not, from real issues of the day. Can we justify the time spent discussing the rights of transgender individuals while little is said about moves by China to position itself militarily so close to our borders? Is time prosecuting a former president defensible when our borders remain porous and our debt is out of control? The government, especially the federal government, cannot and should not solve all of our problems, but it should at least prioritize those that threaten the very security of the country. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you can share the podcast with just one person, we can continue to further the entire purpose for it to encourage real discourse in society about the state of our nation and the world, for that may be the only way to tur- the, turn the tide of intellectual thinking. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm/solus-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solus Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Seceptor. Copyright 2023.